Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we'll, I guess, finish up our look at The Prince and the Pauper by uh, by Mark Twain. Um, this was published in, I think, 1882, 1881, uh, one of those two years, uh, 1882 maybe. And um, uh I set it up, I think, pretty well last time. I'm not going to focus too much on the plot here since uh, most of you know it already. It's a kind of a body switching kind of story, close close swap that leads to Prince, later King Edward, living the life as a poor person. And then uh, Tim Can- Tom Canty becoming the king in contrast, just because they switched in the clothes. And um, and this allows uh, us then to explore from the eyes of an aristocrat, from a prince, the horrors of, of English society at the time. And it allows us to look at the preposity, preposterousness, insanity of ruling class life uh, through the eyes of Tom, Tom Cantry. Tom Canty. Um, we don't quite get... Uh, that much, like I, I guess, and in, in the hands of a different storyteller, you would have maybe Tom trying to implement some kind of more progressive reforms. We don't get that. Tom Canty's not conscious of of the evils of society. It's just what he lives with. He spends most of the time obsessed and amazed at how absurd court life is, like the whipping boy situation I, I mentioned before. So he doesn't start like he mentions a few things like maybe we should do this like like we should have budget cuts or something because of of debts and the court's like baffled by anyone would suggest that, but we don't get the sense that there's any real power in in Tom Canty as Edward, <clears throat> right? And maybe that's partially because he doesn't command that respect. Now in contrast, so the point is Tom never really does become king outside of just symbolically. At the same time, uh, Edward never stops being kingly. So I think this is kind of the, like a, I mean, this could be a weakness of the story in a way, in that it's not like the role makes us who we are, right? Edward never stops being regal. He's able to command the interests of people. People at first are like skeptical of him calling himself king, but they respect that. Um, and I guess it parallels the Duke and the King a little bit, but even that, not quite, because the Duke and the King are obviously fake. I mean, I guess Jim buys it for a while, like a little bit. Tom or Huck Finn knows right away they're 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 not real. Dukes and Kings. Um, and here, no one really believes at first that Edward is King, but he has that aura or something. He has that ability to command respect, so he quickly builds up an entourage. Right, um, and is able to kind of have his lackeys and his simps surrounding him, and they're the ones that are going to lead him to to reclaim his his rightful throne. Now we even get a name in the story for this uh, kingly figure, Fufu the First, is what he's called, and he goes on various adventures. Uh, most prominently, he gets essentially uh, kidnapped, and he has to fight his way to escape. Then he gets thrown in jail for for stealing for for a crime of stealing something worth sixteen pence, and that's like a that's that that's a crime that can punish with execution. So he's brought face to face through the 
ridiculous laws of English society at the time. So we have both characters essentially seeing things as ridiculous, but one in a much more brutal way, one in a much more comical way. Even though this book's not funny. Um, that would be, you know, the situation might be somewhat funny, but uh, not like Can the Yankee at King Arthur's Court. That's a funny book. Um, Joan of Arc, we're going to do that next. I don't remember that as being particularly funny. I just think he's got like some kind of weird crush on Joan of Arc. Um, but yeah, I didn't find this book particularly funny, and I don't, I'm not, a, actually, I'm not a big fan of it. I don't think it's um, a book I'll come back to for many, many years, if at all. Um, but anyways, um, the institutional barbarism of early modern London and early modern England is at the heart of the book. Um, and I talked about that a little bit last time. Um, so, you know, Edward's going to spend some time in prison. He's constantly evading hooligans, evading the law, um, trying to avoid the violence of the state on the one side and the violence of, of, a, of a disrupted society brought forth by like enclosure and early capitalism being disrupted. Twain uh, is not quite doing that his, much of a historical analysis. I don't think he's really aware of that. But um, obviously, he's, he's got it sort of right in that this is when English society really starts to break from the Middle Ages and become capitalist. Um, now, the Tudors, I don't think do. I think the Tudors still are largely a feudal rule feudal rule it's like henry the eighth still has these fights with the pope kind of like a like a medieval monarch he's obsessed with his like you know having a son keeping things in the family line his whole family are usurpers uh he's there like parliament isn't a thing really yet not till later in elizabeth's reign elizabeth is all about perception and, and all that and i don't know i just get a more of a feudal vibe from the tudors which makes sense. Most of Europe is still fairly in the feudal age throughout the 1600s. The Reformation does explode that world, but it's still the court life is still where it's at. The Stuarts, the kings who come out, and they are related, right? But they're related through marriage, so they are kind of their own line. Um, the kings of Scotland are they're they're more for absolutism, right? They're trying they they're seeing a way a path to move England to keep up with the modern world by kind of modeling France um, with absolutism and mercantilism and these kinds of policies, strengthening the court. And this, of course, leads to the confrontation with Parliament, to the English Civil War, which unleashes all sorts of religious forces, unleashes. Um, so that's the thing. Like you have the Tudors where it seems like English society is being manipulated by by the court, by the crown, right? Whether it's the Reformation or Queen Mary's return or anything like that. And you have then the Stuarts, they're being thrust through, they're being forced into modernity by, by, by history, right? And they're the ones who do it. They're the ones who they're for. And I think that's what makes it more interesting. And I also think their story is just profoundly more epic, right? Where you have a king is executed, another a couple are exiled for a while. They exile and return. They start up the Royal Society. You have the fire in London and the plague and the rebuilding of London. You have uh, the drama of Queen Anne. You have uh, the beginning of the modern parliamentary system and the, and the Whiggish party. You have this titanic struggle, like really a world war with, with France. That goes on through the, the entire late Stuart reign, right? From, from William and Mary through Anne to, to the end of the reign of, of Louis XIV. 
You have the establishment of the New World Colonies. In almost every way, the Stuarts are the ones that are making modern England. True. But there's still something in the Tudor reign. The Tudor reign is beginning the process of disrupting uh, English society with the enclosures and I think also with like the vagrancy laws. The vagrancy laws are, are like mentioned directly in this book and there's something that that um, Edward faces throughout this. And, and his stint in prison um, leads him to question, contemplate the morality of the criminalization of poverty. I think Mark Twain wants to imagine if Edward had lived, because of course he dies as a teenager, so he never actually gets to be king in any substantial way. It's, he's more of a regency. And it's really driven by more of the people around him, which is why when Mary takes over, she's able to put in a whole new group of people, move England in a different way, and then Elizabeth is going to do the same thing. He doesn't really have the mark um, that Henry or Elizabeth or Mary seem to have on English society because he is kind of surrounded by these, like basically it's kind of a regency, regency government. Had he lived, maybe Mark Twain here wants to imagine this. So the beginning of the book, it actually says like, this didn't happen, but it could have happened. Well, what could have happened, I think, he's trying to say, is what could have happened is, is England could have maybe had a more moral set of laws, right? But I think there's a, very, there's a myopia, I guess, in his approach. It's just like looking at one king, one figure, instead of looking at the broad sweep of English society. Um, Maybe he gets to that in the Connecticut Yankee King Arthur's Court, I think. Definitely there you have uh, this question of like feudalism in the medieval dealt with very, very intimately. So, um, yeah, let's talk about Tom a little bit. So Tom uh, liked to replicate the lives of the aristocracy. We read about that early in the book. Uh, he even creates his own royal court, uh, like Tom Sawyer's Pirate Band. It's him trying to create a space of power for himself, a bit of autonomy. Um, I think it's more relevant for him than maybe for Tom Sawyer, or it's presented more seriously, where Tom Sawyer is more of a play thing. But I think in both cases, it's someone struggling, someone in an oppressive environment, you know, at least from their point of view. I think Tom's situation is obviously much worse. Uh, Tom Canty, I mean, Tom Sawyer is a little more middle-classy. He's got a... a a mother figure who doesn't really watch over him that carefully. So he's not as oppressed. Tom Canty's being beaten. Tom Canty's actually more like Huck Finn in this way. But he's like Huck Finn. If Huck Finn wanted to play uh, novels the way Tom Sawyer did. So, um, but he, one thing he lacks training in, and he never gets this training in his play, is being brutal. Which is also something I would I, I noticed that... Um, Hawk Finn never really gets. Tom Sawyer gets a little bit of brutality in his play, but even him, you know, they, they just talk. It's just talk. It's not till Jim, and they get to play games with Jim in his, you know, pretending he's still a slave at the end of Huck Finn that we see some of the more brutality in, in Tom. Um, now... He brings this to the court. He brings kind of his play to the court. That's the thing. When he becomes king, or at least pretend king of England, he kind of brings that play to the court. And that's awkward. And it's like the other court people don't really understand. So what he's doing or why he's doing it, they think he's mad. They think he's kind of crazy. They think there's something up with him, right? 
and this is why the whipping boy thing is is baffling to him but he's not deranged he's not insane that's why he doesn't um find it appealing so now tom does have a little bit more benevolence to criminals as king um because these are people he knew or perhaps he had his own fear of the law so he pardons the people who comes before him regardless of their crimes um that's kind of the one thing he's able to do Tom understands, to some degree, the odiousness of state's mechanism of justice, where, and this is a quote from the book about midway through, death and a violent death for these poor unfortunates, the thought wrung Tom's heartstrings. The spirit of compassion took control of him to the exclusion of all their considerations. He never thought that the offended laws or the grief or loss which these criminals had inflicted upon their victims, he could think of nothing but the scaffold and the grisly fate hanging over the heads of the condemned. End quote. So Tom never learned to be king. A king can't do that. A king has to like just do the law, whatever that is, and stand by it. Um, and and I think we can break up society into those two people: one who kind of see the criminal justice system and see the brutality of that system, and say, "Oh my God, that's prison's horrible. The the racial injustice in the system is horrible. Capital punishment's horrible, and I, and I can't face it." And then there's people who look at the crimes and say, that's horrible. How can we stomach it? How can we face it? Right. And I'm, I'm obviously on kind of Tom's side here. That it's Crime is crime. It's not state action. If capital punishment stopped crimes, we could have a story. Uh, we could talk about that. But what I've read suggests it doesn't really work. Um, now... Does Edward learn something from his experiences as, as the pauper? I guess that's the other part of the story. And he certainly does, it seems. He spends a lot of the novel being the butt of jokes. Uh, this is like the few places where the book does try to be funny. This was mostly because he's sustaining this princely demeanor, this attitude, this hoity-toity attitude. Comes off as being called Fufu the First or whatever, right? He's, despite living essentially in the gutter, right? It's really like the Duke and the King and... It's easy to kind of be hard on Edward as someone who's playing a king. Because what is a king but someone who, who plays a king, right? Because the, there's, I guess he's got some education. The Duke and King, I guess, could have got some education, right? They, they, they know some Shakespeare. <laughs> they, 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 you know, they, they could talk like a king a little bit. Maybe not that well. But in another world, they maybe could. If they put some work into it, if they trained themselves, they could They could not possibly do it. My point is there's something about, like, perception and acting. Right? Now, obviously, the Duke and the King are much more ridiculous than Edward here. But it's still kind of, you kind of laugh at it at, on some level. Like, he is, like, oh, I'm the king. You know? When, they, when he hears Henry VIII dies, he's not, like, shocked by that or mourning or anything. He's just like... Hey, I'm supposed to be the king. I'm the king. And, and people kind of tease him and go along with it. Like they're playing, like, like Tom played king as a kid, which is, which is, kind, of, this is kind of an extension of that, I suppose. Um, now, Ed, Edward is certainly exposed to enough of the truth to fuel transformations. Um, he meets this man named Yokel. It's one of the more dramatic moments. Yokel gives him 
story, his story while also condemning the reality of English law. Right? And, and the quote here is, Thank you, mates. Once in all, I beg from house to house, I and the wife bearing with us hungry kids. But it was a crime to be hungry in England. So they stripped us and lashed us through three towns. And still I begged again and was sold for a slave here in my cheek under the stain. If I washed it off, you would see the red S that branding iron had left there. A slave. Do you understand that word? An English slave. Now, after this, he goes, uh, ends up with the tramps. And this is where he gets sort of kidnapped. And his friend uh, Hendon, so the, the leader of that band is Hugo. That's who he has to struggle with. That's like the, the moment in which he has to kind of assert his actual position. Um, you know, his friend Hugh Hendon saves him, and Miles Hendon is, is like the brother is there too. And then we have the second big confrontation he has, which is with the state. So Mark Twain puts him between two con two con the two main conflicts he faces is one with the government, one with the judge, and the other with like a hooligan, a ruffian. So it's two sides of the struggle of being poor in England at the time. So the the climax of the novel then is is Edward crashing his own coronation, and then the seal, like the hidden seal, that MacGuffin of the seal, is is restored. Uh, the real one is identified, and and Edward's able to prove that he's the actual king. So everything gets set right. Um, at one point in the novel, Edward says he wants to kill Tom Canty for for being a usurper, but he uh, he steps back on that. And Edward does clean up some of the mess monarchy had created, but only at the surface level. Uh, he's not a true reformer. Ultimately, he gets that one guy out of slavery, forgives a few criminals. He makes Tom a ward of the state. So he allows the Canty family basically to be, um, you know, courtiers of some, por of some type. They're personal reforms. It's, it's like uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, like helping helping Bob Cratchit, but still foreclosing on people or whatever. I mean, we don't know the, the, how he changes his business after, after that. Right. Um, but there's something very personal about his, his, his redemption. It's not bad, but Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge focuses on clients, employees, right? Especially as the only real story we get of any good he does is with his employee. Right. Maybe there's a hint of, of how he helps the clients, but but he's still a landlord, right? And, and a moneylender. Maybe he gives more charity when his, when his, when his uh, nephew comes by once a year. Um, but um, it's all personal. That's my point. Um, Edward can't stop being the heart of a system. He's a monarch. Um, and can he really do more than just the emotional reaction to his experiences? Feel bad about what happened, feel bad about the pores he met along the way, and fix them up. Um, but that is something Tom and Edward have in common, is that they both fail to address themselves to the broader need of justice. That when they both make changes as kings, it's always individual reforms. It's like, oh, that criminal we should let free, or that Tom, we're not going to murder him as a as usurper, we're going to make him a ward. Everything's very personal. It's an individual. There's not a systemic fix anywhere. And I think that is 
the limit of the radicalism of, of this book. And that's one reason I think, I mean, maybe he's making a point that it can't, it's, it's like a, it's like a, um, um, David Simon kind of argument, right? Like this is just the shitty world we live in. And yeah, you can create Amsterdam for a while, but ultimately this, the system is not fixable. So you're stuck with it, that, that kind of liberal ennui. There's, no, there's not much potential for more radicalism, maybe. Uh, maybe that's Mark Twain's point, but I don't think Mark Twain ultimately is a radical himself. He's, he can write an anti-slavery novel years after slavery has ended, right? He can write anti-monarchical books from America, <laughs> right? He's, could he have written this book in England? Would he have written it in England? I don't know. I, I think that's, it's, a, it's, it's later in his life. I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to cast an accusation on, on Twain because I do know later in his life he does get more, a little more edgy in his critique of society and imperialism. But at this point, I think he's still kind of in a safe space. And, and this novel is very safe. It's feel good. It's, it's, it is a children's book, so you don't want to traumatize them too much. But I think in the next book, which we're going to spend, we're going to look three up, we're going to spend three episodes looking at. Um, it's, it's called A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And this is essentially a, a kind of a, it's almost like a utopian novel, like looking backward, where we put someone in a different time period. Well, in looking backward, someone goes to the future and learns about what the world can be if we do certain reforms. In this, someone goes back and brings with them their knowledge of the future. So it's, it's, it's an inverse utopia. So he's trying to bring a utopia to the Middle Ages, to the 6th century England, and, and fails. So this allows him to be critical both of the medieval and our own, the, the realities of our own world. So that I am very much looking forward to talk to you about. I'm probably going to have more to say about it. Because it, it, the thematically, it's it's closer to what I'm interested in. But that said, uh, if you haven't read Prince and the Pauper, it's probably worth a glance. It doesn't take very long. It's only about 200 pages. But yeah. but I think that's all I'm going to say about this book for now. So, um, yeah, that's it. Let me know what you think. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Oh,